How do you tell your grandchildren that there's nothing, that the future? But then if you look at uh, what's happening around the world, it's the youth who are marching, it's youth who are making protests, it's the youth who are demanding actions from their leaders. Legislating a 43% reduction is a welcome start, but it's not enough. For Australia to be able to look future generations of Pacific Islanders in the eye, it needs to contribute more to lowering global greenhouse emissions, including ending fossil fuel exports. That was the message from former Kiribati President Anote Tong and former Palau President Tommy Remond Garsau on their recent visit to Canberra. This week on Policy, Guns and Money, we speak with the two former Pacific leaders about climate action and geopolitics in the region. Welcome to the Aspie podcast. I'm David Rowe. I am sitting here today with Anote Tong, the former president of Kiribati, and Tommy Remengasau, the former president of Palau. They are in Canberra representing the Pacific Elders Voice Group uh, to talk about climate change and its effects in the Pacific. Gentlemen, mm. thank you very much for making the time. Very welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Mm. That's the opportunity to do that. No problem. So let's, um, let's just talk about um, what you're here to do. What's your message while you're here, here in Canberra? Well, we here, as, as you said, to represent, to hear the voices of the members of our group, a group which was uh, really was made up of former uh, leaders uh, in, in government and leaders of uh, academia, leaders in civil, international civil servants. And um, it's a newly established forum where it provides people, who, like, people like us who have left uh, office to continue to advocate on issues of importance to the Pacific region. Climate change has been one of our major focus, but uh, of course we also cover areas of, of critical importance to, to, to the region. And uh, we're here to try to communicate with the, um, the Australian, the new Australian government, uh, why uh, climate change is such an important issue. It's the critical uh, security issue for the Pacific, okay? I know there are also other issues that are coming up at the moment, but uh, we don't want uh, the, 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 the region and the debate, the discussion, to be distracted away from climate change as the major security issue facing uh, the Pacific Island countries. Mm. Mr. Remy Garza, do you want to add to that? Well, with just, just that uh, we bring a united voice, really, uh, from the Pacific. And also, we, we're bringing the same message that uh, even our leaders in the respective governments are saying. And that, uh, again, is that uh, when it comes to the security and livelihood of the Pacific Island people, climate change is first and foremost. Mr. Tom, picking up on something you just said, are you concerned that climate and the Pacific is, is something that is dropping down the agenda, that there are there are other international issues. I mean, one thinks of Ukraine, obviously, here in Taiwan have become mm -hmm. a, a major Indo-Pacific Indo point of tension. Mm -hmm. uh, you're concerned that it may be... Uh, Relegated down, yeah. yes, absolutely. The, the pandemic itself um, really, really distracted everybody, the whole global community. And then, of course, comes the Ukraine issue. And now we have the tensions over in the South China Sea, which is spilling over into our part of the world. But uh, as uh, my colleague says, first and foremost, uh, climate change it remains the most critical issue because we cannot find the vaccine yet, okay? And we don't seem to be getting 
the measures that are needed in order to avoid it in place. Yeah. And when it comes to climate change, uh, uh, we really have to approach it from the, uh, the regional family perspective. Because what happens to one another affects the other. And it's very timely in a way because the Australian government has just uh, been uh, formed according to the will of the people. And we're encouraged by what we're hearing uh, as the direction of the new government towards uh, climate change. So we're here to definitely send a message that, uh, yes, we like what we hear, because there we need to bridge the gap between what has been committed and the actual actions on the ground. Uh, of course, the other day when the parliament passed the 43% target, that's a welcomed news throughout the Pacific and, of course, the world community. Uh, but we're also here to say that uh, what we have said we needed to do is nearly not enough to get the job done as uh, scientists and science have been telling us. So we need to go beyond the 43%. And we hope uh, that it, according to what we've heard, it's good to know that this is the floor. So obviously there's still the ceiling that we need to reach. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there's so many things we find that uh, uh, we need to address, you know, climate financing, uh, adaptation, and uh, loss and damage. Uh, those are real issues that uh, we want to bring on the table and work with Australia as the big brother of the family. Uh, because again, it's a matter of life and death, a matter of survival. And if the family do not help themselves uh, with the leadership of Australia, then it's very hard to get the partnership or to begin to make a difference on the ground. Sorry to be obsessed with the headline numbers, but I mean, do, do you, are you advocating for a particular number from Australia by 2030 and 2050? Okay, the, um, we've, we've been following developments over the last few days, especially last week with the, the passage of the legislation. I mean, that is very significant. But uh, the, it, within the legislation, we have numbers like 43% uh, reduction and, uh, from uh, previous years, and, uh, and it's zero by 2050. Okay. Now, that is very welcome, but of course, there are other issues. We, because in looking at those numbers, we must also consider what it means in terms, how it compares with what the science thinks it is necessary, need to be done. And uh, of course, these numbers do not take into consideration the total emissions for which Australia is responsible, which includes both domestic and exported uh, emissions. And that is very significant that I, you know, we don't want to get, in, to get into a situation where we, there's some accounting of uh, greenhouse gas emissions, carbon emissions. We've got to be realistic and put it on the table to say uh, it's 45% of domestic. It's likely to be misleading when you say 43%, it looks like a, a huge number. But then it doesn't take into consideration the impact of what is being in the fossil fuel, uh, which is being exported by Australia. And that cannot be ignored because Australia benefits by it. And uh, of course, other, other countries are burning it. But the question is, does that absolve Australia from responsibility? If not legal responsibility, then moral responsibility. I know the laws of the international regime around, around those numbers are very complicated. I'm going to challenge you a bit on that. If India, China, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan feel mm -hmm. that they can mm -hmm. uh, import Australian coal and gas 
and still meet their international commitments, isn't that a matter for them? What, why is it Australia's responsibility to be responsible for other countries' inputs as well as our own outputs? Well, I think that's where the leadership and the integrity of this whole uh, debate comes into focus. Are we walking the talk or are we swiftly kicking the can down the road? For us, this is real. We're passionate about it because whether you're burning gold in Australia or the Pacific or Pakistan or Iceland, it's affecting sea level rise. It's affecting storms in the Pacific, the typhoons, the earthquake. It's affecting uh, ocean acidification. Uh, it's affecting coral bleaching. So, you know, it doesn't matter where it's happening around the world. We are on the front line of the, the impacts of climate change. And so we're, we're saying this is a, a global problem. Uh, everybody needs to do their job. China, United States, Australia, and for that matter, everyone. But let's, let's not use the loopholes to get away from the, what science is saying. We need to come down at least by 1.5 degrees. Uh, or else their islands in the in the Pacific will disappear and and the uh, tragedies that we're seeing in Pakistan or elsewhere will continue. So we're also saying it's interesting that what we forecast will happen is happening, but we still have these economic uh, debates, these uh, industry concerns that seems to overwhelm the, the morale and the integrity and the responsibility of what each one of us should be doing. I think that's, that's all we're asking. Mr. Tong, you, I think it was you who mentioned, um, uh, you know, the family, oh, sorry, it must, might have been Mr. Raymond Gasso mentioned the, the family, mm. um, the Pacific family, uh, approach. I mean, the, the, the Albanese government and particularly Foreign Minister Wong, uh, have put a lot of emphasis on Pacific relationships as a foreign policy priority. Do you feel that those relationships can be uh, progressed and deepened while Australia maintains its current trajectory on climate? Or, I mean, do you, would you like, do you feel that the, that the region needs to see more movement from Australia um, before the relationships can really progress? Let me just say, uh, concentrate again on the family. You don't just say I'm family when it's my interest and I'm not family when, I'm, uh, when it's not my interest. Uh, because this is a matter of life and death. It's the sustainability of island people. It's our culture. It's our way of life. It's our economy. It's our traditions. You know, it, it's the very livelihood, our children and their children, the next generations to come. So we can't pick and choose uh, who your friends are. It's, you know, we are here with you. And Australia, we look at Australia as the big brother. And uh, the big brother also has that responsibility to take leadership. And so when it comes to all of this, we're also playing, we're asking Australia, your family, you also agree your family. Well, as family, then this is our main concerns, is our critical concerns. Can you be a leader in showing not only concrete actions in the Pacific, but showing to the rest of the world that we are doing something about it, but it's not enough. And so the world, the global community needs to pitch in their share too. Absolutely. <clears throat> I mean, it's been clear the position of the Pacific Island countries on this. I mean, the, the issue about coal is not a new one. I mean, uh, as a region of the Pacific Island countries alone uh, in 2015, we're putting forward a declaration on this. 
And we invited the rest of the global community to join us in, in putting a moratorium on the opening of new coal mines. And it's not to, to make it difficult for people, but so that we can survive, our, our future generations can survive. It's, it's, a, it's as simple as that. And so, I mean, you're, you're asking the question, how does it affect the relationship between Australia and the Pacific Island countries? You can imagine. You know, we're talking about the future survival of our people. And, I, and Australia is talking about the welfare of its people, how much more money they get, how much uh, material wealth they get, which is no comparison. I don't believe you can draw those comparisons. And so our relationship has been really dominated by the, the climate issue between the Pacific and Australia. I think we've had some examples in the past where, uh, personally, I've had uh, in interactions with your politicians here, uh, simply because I came here to, to, to tell the story. And, um, you know, in, in for me to be saying this, we're not saying this because we're trying to be difficult. Mm. We're saying it because we're trying to ensure that our fu the future of our young people can be guaranteed. Mm. And yeah. the way that, that, that where Australia is heading, it's definitely, according to the science, is definitely detrimental to their future. Um, and, and, and I don't think anyone doubts for a moment the sincerity around the impact that uh, the Pacific uh, countries are experiencing from, uh, from climate change and the need to, to uh, limit uh, rises to 1.5%. I'll just circle back one more time on this, this coal question. So uh, Australia puts a moratorium on new coal mines, phases out uh, coal and fossil fuel exports. What actually happens then? I mean, what, what do you say to the argument that that the countries that are currently importing Australian coal and gas find it elsewhere. And that is the point. Because Australia can and needs to be a leader on this campaign. And this is, if you want to be part of the family, as my friend says, then you've got to be able to lead this campaign. And we in the Pacific have been looking forward to Australia not only be, being a part of the campaign, but leading the process. Australia has the capacity to do it. And I believe it needs to do this. And there's great opportunities, as we all know, with renewables. And this is another area where Australia can truly be a, a leader in this. It's definitely, renewables are definitely a big part of the, big part of the solution. And uh, we're also talking about the win-win situation that rene renewables create with the leadership of Australia. For example, it's also very expensive to you, to, for the island governments to generate electricity through their power plants, which are solely, uh, totally dependent on, on fossil fuels. So what could be a better leadership role for Australia to use that technology, to use that uh, the, the financing and, and the partnership that could really enhance the capabilities of the islands. While we contribute the least to the impacts of climate change, we can certainly be on the forefront of renewables as, a, as part of the answer of, uh, of, of this region. And you know, small island communities, you don't really need a big budget as compared to like China or India to make that transition. It's going to be quite relatively less expensive and certainly within the, the framework of what we're trying to do as we address the transformation period. So we think that uh, it's about time we, we talk about the realities and the opportunities over there. So it, it's according to data, according to statistics, the renewables industry is 
definitely a big opportunity for not only technology, but for corporations and, and therefore collaborations to happen. And what better way to implement it than on your own backyard to showcase the, the solution. Let's talk for a moment about the impacts that you've both both referred to. I mean, cutting emissions is obviously still the main game, but the reality is that there's an extent of warming sea level rises that are pretty much factored into the next few decades already. Yes. What's the worst case scenario to, to you uh, for the impacts for your countries in terms of population displacement, in terms of cultural loss, forced migration, the, these sorts of issues? The, the, the sixth assessment report of the IPCC, which was released at the beginning of this year, is very clear that within, by the middle of the century, our home islands will no longer be able to support the populations, people. And so the question is, where do we go from there? What happens to our uh, culture, our tradition, okay? For me, it's, it's not, uh, uh, it's really a real uh, human discussion. I've got friendship. And I often wonder, looking at them playing, you know, what is to become of them when all of this is coming down because there is nothing in place. And uh, we're still debating about how it would affect our economies. Yet here we are trying to visualize what it is that's going to happen to these young people. But I think the point that also needs to be made here in Australia is that uh, we may be on the front line today, but Australians are also on the edge and we'll be falling off the edge not so long after this. And as long as Australia keeps supplying coal to other countries, we're going to get the closer and get closer for the Australian, the, the, for people in Australia, not only to feel the, the, the floods that you had this year, but it's going to be worse, more frequent. You're going to be seeing the, the world, even worse bushfires that you experienced in 2019-2020. So it's not just about us in the islands. It's also about people in in Australia, people in this side of the world, we are hearing in Pakistan, everywhere. So it, the world is on the, is burning, okay? And it's drowning. So we really need to get a proper perspective that it's not just about us and the islands. Oh, I'm fascinated. Do you have that conversation with your grandchildren? And what do they say? They don't understand because how do you tell your grandchildren that there's nothing, that their future but, so totally but then sad. if you look at uh, what's happening around the world, it's the youth who are marching. It's youth who are making the protest. It's the youth who are demanding actions from their leaders because they, they, they understand that it, this is really their future we're talking about. And if the present generation are not going to make the necessary hard decisions, then it probably left, be left up to the youth when they become policymakers when they when they take the responsibility. And that's really what gives us hope, uh, is that the youth of, to of tomorrow will begin to take the responsible action. Today, sadly, it's all about economics and, 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 and the integrity of what we need to do. Mostly it's about industry and less about the moral responsibility. And that's all we're asking is, can we at least make that balance so that we begin to phase out uh, the fossil fuel and really address the moral and in, uh, responsibility and the integrity and the leadership that needs to be there. Because if we don't, I don't have to explain to my children. I, he, probably, she, he or she will probably blame me for 
for for not make the taking the doing the right thing. I mean, again, accepting that that reducing emissions is um, the main game, but change is already built into the next few decades. Can you just talk a little bit about what you're looking for in terms of climate climate resilience support? Uh, should Australia, for instance, be a food security guarantor for Pacific countries? Should, should it uh, be investing more in various mitigation measures? Again, uh, if you look at the causes of the problems, especially for us in the Pacific, a lot of it is caused by climate change. You see the uh, the, the migration of fish that uh, migrate elsewhere outside some of our borders because of the, the temperatures of the water. Uh, you see the economies that relies on tourism uh, being, you know, eroded because the, you know, nobody, nobody would want to come to a reef that is bleached. So it, it's not just uh, about dollars. It, it's also about uh, the resiliency factor and who is... Uh, who is responsible for creating those problems in the first place? Should they uh, also bear the responsibility to cut down or stop what they're doing? Or is it not their problem because it's not happening in their own backyard? I always use the example of the sea level rise. The ice glacier meltdown in the coldlands are happening because of climate change. We know that. But when they, when they melt and they increase the sea level, Guess where it is the most affected? Out here in the Pacific where there's atolls and no higher places to go. So while other countries may have higher grounds where they can afford to withstand it, we, we are feeling the first and uh, sadly impact of the sea level rise, which did not happen in our backyard. It happened uh, somewhere around the world where the ice glaciers were melting. That's the reality. So. A question can be asked, what should Australia, the United States, China, and those responsible, what is their moral obligation to this? Is, does it matter that we were only a few thousand people and therefore we shouldn't uh, take us seriously? Or does it matter because eventually what's happening to our part of the world will also happen to the, to the bigger developed nations? And we're seeing that already. Mr. Tong, do you have any uh, views on resilience and mitigation? Well, it's, um, <clears throat> I, I don't know if many people really understand the nature of what it is that uh, constitute our own miners. You know, they're low-lying atolls, barely six meters above sea level on average, but that is even a liberal indication of the, the altitude above the, the, the high water mark. Now, homes are being affected every time we get uh, the king tides. Uh, just uh, last month, we had flooding in our eastern islands because simply because the king tides coincided with uh, high pressure zones in close by. Uh, the Cook Islands were washed out. The hotels were washed out. The, in, even in Hawaii, there were some of the islands were affected. And so all of this is happening. Okay. Now, given the scenarios already projected from as far back as the, the fourth assessment report in 2007. Now, that assessment, the scenarios predicted in that assessment report, have been getting worse every successive report until the sixth assessment report, which now says it's not up to the end of the century, but by the middle of the century. And so we are looking between now and the middle of the century, we are looking at climate-induced migration on a scale 
that is going to be unprecedented, okay? Because it won't be just people from our home, our islands in the Pacific. They'll be global. And so we are talking about a, a totally different world and that we've got to understand that. And that I regrettably, not many people are grasping this reality. The, the brutal reality of us coming is going to be on a scale never seen before. Does the most recent IPCC report, for instance, in your view, accurately reflect the urgency in terms of issues like forced migration? No, there's never been any real focus on it. Okay. I say so. Nobody is discussing it, and uh, even the idea of climate refugees has no definition in the uh, in the international lexicon. Okay, and so that is an issue that's being it's not even even being put on the table, and the reason is because. No country is willing to step forward to say, if ever anything happens, we will step in. The only one that's done so that I've heard of was Fiji. And I said that at the 2015 COP meeting in Paris, because it was a challenge with the rest of the, 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 rest of the uh, international community that this is how it's going to be. But this is the response so far. Nobody else has been responding in a positive way. But I guarantee you what happened and the massive migration in Europe, from North Africa to Europe, I mean, no, everybody denied that it was coming. But when it came, everybody was surprised, but they should not have been surprised. It was always inevitable. So let's not ignore what's coming. Yeah, let's get ready for it, because it's going to be massive. And I can tell you that according to the reports, even if uh, emission levels are cut to zero tomorrow, this will continue, still happen. And so you will ask me the question, so why do you bother? Because it is important, because we will be the victims, and we don't want any more victims. Just a couple of quick questions to, to finish off. Mr. Remengasau, President Whips uh, was the first Pacific Island leader to publicly reach out to President Sogavare and express concerns about uh, Solomon Islands' security agreement with China. Mr. Tong, Kiribati's opposition has accused the government of yielding to China over issues uh, such as the withdrawal from PIF. Can I just get both of your views on these sorts of geopolitical developments and how they are being seen among the general populations of your own countries? Well, first of all, there's no question that we need to come together and strengthen in every way the family structure that we have in the region. There's a role for everybody. Uh, political, the political considerations of any sovereign island country is theirs to make. But at the end of the day, we're always worried about what is the uh, fabric that's holding the, the, the family together? How can we continue to address our regional problems as a, a, as a united front? Uh, because any, anybody who's been in government knows that no island country is an island. You know, Either we do it together or the world is not going to pay attention to us or our problems will not receive the necessary attention that it deserves. So I, I, I'm, we're hoping that they, they're going to resolve their differences and uh, political climate. But then again, it comes to the, the structure of the family. As family, we should work with Australia and our close partners to get this. Because if we don't do it, then others outside the, our traditional alliance will step in to address these concerns, and that this creates more uh, debate, more bickering as to who is doing what or who needs to do what. 
So that's our message and that's our wish that the Pacific Island family through the forum will continue to strengthen itself for our sake and for everybody's sake. Mr. Tong, your thoughts? Well, it's, um, I mean, China certainly is a new player in the region, okay? And it's uh, been very aggressive, but I think what's important to note is um, there was a time when China was Australia's best friend, and then suddenly it went south. So the question is, because I remember I was here, in, I think 2004, and, uh, my switching relations to Taiwan was criticized by the government. But I said, no, you deal with your foreign policy, let me deal my, with my foreign policy. It seems now that I was correct when I made that decision in 2003. But uh, the point is, um, the, this kind of uh, geopolitical dynamics are always, uh, you know, uh, are fluid. And uh, what is happening now is because China is coming on strong and uh, is being regarded as uh, upsetting the, the status quo in the region. Well, we've been, Australia has always been one of our biggest uh, development partners, and that is the case for the region. But I think the issue is, have we been taking each other uh, too much for granted all of these years from both sides and really haven't developed uh, that relationship into something that's more binding, that would keep us bound together under stress. Mm. Okay, now it's being stressed. And uh, already we are seeing Solomon Islands, we are seeing Kilbis because Kilbis changed relations in, in, in 2019. Uh, going back to China, when we we had uh, relations with Taiwan in the past, but uh, China hasn't stopped there. It's been active in the region for quite some time. Many of the Pacific Island countries have taken huge loans from from China, and so it is not a new phenomenon. It's been going on for quite some time. I uh, I think the, the what's causing the panic is China is taking on a new. Um, it's taking on a new. Uh, it's a different China today from what it was some years ago. It's being seen as being more aggressive, uh, belligerent, and so, and it's, it's posing a strategic danger to uh, Australia and the United States. And so we become significant because of our strategic locations. Kiribati is one of the, the few countries in the Pacific that uh, has got um, uh, islands very close to the testing missile. Uh, testing range that the Americans have in the Marshall Islands. It's got one of the most eastern islands that's close to the U.S.'s 50th state. Okay, so we have that strategic location. And China also, I'm sure, wants to get access to our huge fishery resources. And so all of this are new, and they're challenging the status quo, and now people are starting to panic. But the question is, how do Pacific Islands perceive this new dimension in the geopolitics in the region. Some, they think it's good because we're not part of that competition, okay? nor are we likely to be attacking anybody. Okay? And so we become the pawn in all of this. Final question, what do you say is China's strategic ambitions in the Pacific? Well, that's the question that you're all, we're all trying to find out. I think that China is not, has not only been active in the Pacific, it's been active the world over. The BRI has been very active, and uh, I know China is a different animal today from what it was. We, we quite appreciate that. The question is, how did we come to this situation? Could we have prevented it? Could the, could the family truly have 
created an atmosphere where we we have the same principles, the same values, the same mission moving forward. Why are we in a sort of a divide and conquer situation right now? The answers the, to those questions uh, needs to be frankly and truthfully assessed. What, what's your What's the top of the head? Uh, oh, I don't know what Australia, <laughs> the United States is thinking. I, I just know where Palau stands. Is you know we have uh, we are friends to all and enemies to none, but we also value uh, principles and democracy, democratic uh, uh, values, and they are, they dictate who we make friends with. But yeah. then let's not take friends for granted. Then. Gentlemen, I know you're very busy in Canberra. Thank you so much for making time for Aspie's podcast. Tommy Reagan, uh, uh, Raymond Garsau, uh, former president of Palau, and Ote Tong, former president of Kiribati. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for this. Thanks for listening to Policy Guns and Money. We'll be back next week.